Geekish Cast is a member of the Astro Panda Productions Network. Welcome back to Geekish Cast, the world's reigning heavyweight champion of geek talk on the internet. I am your host, Jeremy, and joining me today is writer, author, and director, Scott Phillips. What's happening, Scott? Hey, how you doing, Jeremy? <laughs> doing well. How's your uh, How's your eyeball? Uh, it's still kind of effed up. I yeah. still don't got the double vision going on, but it's not as bad as it was. Yeah, so, so what happened was uh, Scott was actually, while writing a horror movie on a camping trip, was attacked by a masked uh, psychopath and got a nice <laughs> pick in the eye, and he has been recovering. But it did blow up a couple of the early opportunities we were going to record an interview with him. So I'm glad to hear <laughs> glad to hear you're doing better. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, uh, I only see uh, uh, one Captain Kirk now when I watch Star Trek, as oh. opposed to to two or oh. or four. Well, I was going to say d- which which episodes have you been watching? Because I know there's one with two. <laughs> yeah, there's at least two with I two actually. That's right. Yeah, because yeah. uh, uh, what are little girls made of? And Enemy Within, right? Mm-hmm. And not that they're on screen together, but even Mirror Mirror has two Captain Kirks on screen at some point. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But I digress. So we can tell you're a Trek <laughs> fan, so that's a good starting point. Um, the way I came to contact you, Scott, was um, a buddy, a, a mutual friend of ours, Don Adams, who's also a writer, director, uh, editor, I believe is what the IRS calls him. Was yeah. going going through a list of friends that you know would like you know I might like to talk to for Geekish Cast, and at the time I was pretty tight with a group of guys doing a Friday the Thirteenth podcast, and you wrote a Friday the Thirteenth novel called Church of the Divine Psychopath. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which that was, was uh, two thousand five, I guess. Yeah, and you were you were kind enough to send me your copy of the book as well, so thank you for that. Yeah, that, was, that thing is freaking hard to come by too and I, I that was that was actually the copy that belonged to my mom so it might have smelled like cigarette smoke but oh uh, that's all right i only quit smoking four years ago so i might smell like cigarette smoke <laughs> but yeah that thing goes for uh it went out of print almost instantly after it came out and i've seen it for upwards of 300 bucks on amazon it's crazy oh wow um well and, and for anybody that hasn't read it which i'm gonna assume is quite a lot of people unless you're completists of friday the 13th um <laughs> it's basically blackwater versus jason is how part of it comes down with a hillbilly or not so hillbilly uh southern style preacher in the mix Who's I was yeah, this your kind of I, Jim Jones kind of guy? Yeah, was this your idea or did they approach you with the idea? How yeah. does how does this come together? They, uh, well, I I got involved with those guys through a, a buddy of mine named Nathan Long who uh, wrote a bunch of uh, uh, Warhammer books for Games Workshop, and uh, he uh, they asked him to pitch. They were starting this uh, imprint called Black Flame, and they were going to do licensed stuff like uh, like the the Friday the Thirteenth books, and I think I think they were doing like Final Destination books or something. I don't know. They, were, they did a bunch of stuff, and uh, uh, he said he didn't think he was the guy to pitch for it. But they they asked. He told them about me, so they asked me to pitch, and I had this idea just based on the review I had written of a Friday the Thirteenth movie back when I used to write movie reviews for a, a local alternative paper, and they 
just jumped on it. So I wound up writing that. And, okay. And, so, uh, I mean, was that your idea too? The book? I mean, the story yeah. in the book? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Because I've always been curious if, if those, you know, how often it's the writer's idea and how often it's the publishing house going, hey, so here's the story we want you to write, you know? Yeah, that I, I think that happens. But in this case, they just asked me to pitch several different ideas. And I pitched that one and I pitched a Jason X with, that was kind of, the idea I had for that was sort of like the, uh, you know, the domed forests in, in Silent Running. Yeah. Uh, the the idea I had was that uh, Jason winds up aboard one of those kind of ships, but there's been some sort of catastrophic event where all the adults were wiped out, but they had taken all the kids into one of these domed forests, so they grew up as this kind of like Lord of the Flies <laughs> sort of Stone Age tribe, and then they face off against Jason on the spaceship. And That's actually they, uh, kind of an awesome idea. <laughs> yeah, that would have been fun to write. Yeah. The, the the company kind of fell apart after a while. And I don't even know who owns the rights to that stuff now. As far as I can tell from a brief look, it, it's a, a holding company somewhere that bought them up. But nobody's oh, really? doing well. I and mean, like I said, just real quick, that's kind of the way it looked to me. But I, I don't quote me because it's probably inaccurate. But that's what it looked like yeah. from from where I was coming from. Um, now, as a guy who's a big fan of the first couple Friday the Thirteenth movies, I do have to ask you, and you probably don't remember, but in a couple lines in the book, you do make reference to Jason having yellow eyes in the plural, even though he got macheted right through one of his eyes. So. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I I didn't really want to set it at any specific point in the series, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's funny. A lot of people have seen reviews of the book, and people try to set it after uh, part seven, which probably makes sense, depending you know based on the way that it starts. But really, it's not. It's just anywhere in the timeline you want to put it. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, see, I've got this. Jason's eyes are always a big problem for me because anytime you see him in the early movies, the eye on the right side of his face is like halfway down, and you can tell like not a good eye. Like probably yeah. doesn't probably yeah. doesn't work. And then in part four, when Tommy kills him, he machetes him through the uh, left eye. <laughs> so you know, according to that, by number six, Jason's got no eyes. So it's it's I nerd <laughs> I nerd out on these things, you know. <laughs> he's got eyesight like I do. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah. so I guess you could really identify with him. Exactly. Now, now yeah. Um, well, let's talk about something you did a little bit earlier, like back in the uh, mid to late 90s. You wrote a movie called Drive. Yeah. And, um, yeah. let's see here. So this but actually not the, had... Yeah, not the Ryan Gosling movie. <laughs> no. But um, this actually had a guy that played the TV version of The Crow on it. Which is kind of yeah, cool. Yeah, Mark Costas. Yeah, and dude was a bit of a, uh, a martial arts badass, if I remember correctly. Oh yeah, yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's the real deal. Yeah. He, uh, most recently, he played uh, Wo Fat on the the new version of Hawaii Five O, and he was on uh, Agents of Shield for a while. I'm not, I, I haven't seen any of the episodes he was on, but I think he was one of the Inhumans. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, because I haven't seen him in much of anything for a long time, but it's because I won't watch uh, Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> ah, okay, yeah, yeah. He's, he's been working steadily. So oh, that's he's, cool. He's all over the place. And he was uh, the 
the uh, the chairman on Iron Chef America for a while too. Oh, cool! Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I I remembered him primarily from a couple. Uh, we've been about this time or literally a couple uh, low budget martial arts flicks, and um, yeah. uh, the Crow TV show. Yeah, he's uh, he's been in a ton of stuff. He was in um, some episodes of Common uh, Rider Dragon Man too, the TV series that I wrote for. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I guess there's only so many martial arts actors running around, huh? <laughs> yeah, he's uh, he's really good though. He's a really nice guy. Yeah. So can oh. we can we talk about how Guillermo del Toro owes you uh, dinner, or is that something? Uh, well, <laughs> the 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 whole deal with Drive. Again, this is kind of a long story, but um, I used to own a, a video store in Albuquerque called Wavy Brain that I opened in in early 1993, and uh, I wound up uh, being friends with a, a customer of mine and, and uh, still friends with him now. But uh, we were knocking ideas around one time because I told him I wanted to write. But the, the store specialized in kind of like psychotronic movies. and We had a lot of like Jackie Chan movies and monster movies and things okay. like that. And I told him I wanted to write a script that would combine uh, like, like the Hong Kong style of, of action with American action. And we hatched this story idea, and I wrote the script. And at the time, it was called Road to Ruin because basically the character that wound up being played by Kadeem Hardison in the movie was written with Sylvester Stallone in mind, and the Mark Tocasco's character was written with Jackie Chan in mind. And there's actually a line still in the movie that didn't get changed that should have because one of the bad guys says something about shooting the big guy, not the little guy. But of course, Kadeem Hardison is not the same size as Mark Picasso. <laughs> but, but, uh, I wrote that script and I wound up selling the store like mid 1994 and I moved out to LA. And, uh, through a friend, I wound up amazingly enough renting a room in one air quickly. So, uh, uh, she introduced me to a guy named Craig Hammond who uh, uh, made a Mark Tocascos movie called Boogie Boy that's really good if you haven't seen it. It's sort of a crime film. It's got Joan Jett in it. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's really terrific, but not a lot of people know about it. Um, but he read the script and really liked it and took it to his manager. And she was Mark Tocascos' manager, and she wound up signing me and... Literally a couple months later, the script sold, and uh, uh, the director is a guy named Steve Wang, who made uh, a movie called Kung Fu Rascals, and shot it on Super 8 for about, I think, like $40,000 or something. And then he made, uh, he co-directed the first live-action Geyser movie, and then directed the second one, uh, which is called Geyser Dark Hero. And... Uh, it was through those two movies that I learned about him, and I actually wound up somehow getting the script to him from two different sources <laughs> at the same time, just because I was a fan. And uh, uh, he's like a, you know, a huge Hong Kong action fan, so we actually wound up sort of toning down a lot of the more sort of Americanized stuff with the car chases and everything, because it was a pretty low-budget movie. It was about $4 million. Right. And, uh, and we brought up the, the Kung Fu stuff, but um, the movie was shot, I sold the script in 95, it started shooting at the beginning of 96, and uh, uh, it premiered in the U.S. on HBO 
in early 97, I think. And it was released in theaters in other parts of the world. But uh, um, apparently, Brett Ratner, at the premiere of Rush Hour, told Kadeem Hardison he was really glad the movie didn't get a theatrical release in the States because he wouldn't have been able to rip it off for <laughs> Rush Hour. But then uh, years later, um, Steve Wang, his day job is doing creature effects and stuff. He uh, he painted the original Predator, and uh, I think he sculpted the Batman cowl in Batman Returns. And he's just done tons of stuff. But he did uh, Abe Sapien for uh, Hellboy. And he said that when he met Guillermo del Toro, am I allowed to swear? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Del Toro said, you motherfucker, you motherfucker, I love your movie Drive. And uh, he told him that he had taken a copy of Drive to Prague with him when he shot Blade 2, and he lifted the stun baton fight and the motorcycle fight in Blade 2 from uh, from Drive, which is funny because when I saw Blade 2 with a friend of mine, he said, this movie's got Drive written all over it. And I was like, ah, what are you talking about? Um, and then I met Del Toro at San Diego Con a couple years after that, and he... Uh, he promised to buy me dinner, but he still hasn't made good on it. So. <laughs> well, the Ratner, on the other hand, has not promised me jack shit. I was going to say, <laughs> you know, rich, rich people live by a different set of rules, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind but of yeah, funny. Yeah, the movie's been ripped off all over the place, by the way. There's even a, uh, well, when I was living in L.A., this was 1999, I got a call from a friend of mine who worked for Hustler Magazine. And he was friends with Gregory Dark, who, uh, you know, was one half of the infamous Dark Brothers who made a bunch of porno movies back in the, uh, I guess, 80s. And I, 80s I, early I've 90s. never heard of such a thing. I, I don't I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, the porn. I don't know. This is, yeah, it's just what I you know, pick up on the street. But yeah. uh, <laughs> uh, he uh, actually called this friend of mine and said, I got, I got a deal to make an action movie, and I want to rip off this movie called Drive, and I want you to write it. And Aaron... My friend Aaron Lee said, I, I can't. My friend wrote that movie. I can't rip it off. But Gregory Dark actually wound up ripping it off for a, uh, a music video he directed for Snake River Conspiracy. And it's got the motorcycle fight stuff in it. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, it's pretty funny. So, I mean, is, for you as a writer, what are you. Because, I mean, you've done some, like, um, Japanese action. Uh, I don't even know what you call that. Like, uh, you know, well, you, you worked on Common Rider. Which is kind of yeah. in the same same pool as like uh, Power Rangers, right? The Power Rangers, yeah. yeah, yeah. And what the the deal was? I mean, there there have been I don't even know how many different Common Rider series over the years. I think they started in the early seventies, and mm-hmm. I mean, there's just a shit ton of them. And uh, uh, one of the producers of Drive had gotten the rights to uh, a series called Common Rider Ryuki. If I remember right, and um, it's been so long now. And uh, yeah, Jesus, that was ten years ago that I started writing that series. Um, uh, and they, he wanted to do a, an Americanized version of it using a, a lot of the uh, the action footage from the original and just coming up with a whole new storyline and everything. So the original, it's entertaining, but it's it really it it seems to just be a lot of uh, a lot of scenes of people meeting up on the street and going, I'm a common writer, and so are you, let's fight, you know? And so we kind of wanted to expand the storyline and stuff, and we were basically given free reign to, to do whatever we wanted to. And uh, uh, we did 40 episodes of it, and 
you know, used, I mean, we shot a bunch of new action stuff, but we used a lot of the, the other stuff, the, the original footage, and just had to kind of work it in and then wrote new dialogue and stuff over that. Yeah, so very much like how they did the Power Rangers series and things exactly, at the time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. when we were kids, yeah. when we got like Spectraman and Ultraman, you just got dubbed over... Here exactly. You go. Yeah. yeah, man, Spectre Man. I loved the hell out of that show. Oh yeah, you know, I just recently went back and looked at pictures of the costume and went, "Ooh, I remember it looking much cooler than that." Like, yeah, much yeah. cooler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when when you write stuff, I mean, what's kind of because I mean, you do sci-fi, you do action, you do horror. What's what's your thing? What I mean, what's like if you had to pick between the three, what would be your preferred genre? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I write all kinds of stuff. I've written. I used to write, jeez, I even wrote a ton of uh, uh, <clears throat> exotic stories for a barely legal magazine from the point of view of various teenage girls. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but I, I don't know. I, I, the stuff I've been writing recently has been like urban fantasy stuff and uh, like crime stuff. And I, I just, I don't know. I like to write basically everything. Um, so you just so like to write like is really what it comes down exactly, to. Exactly, yeah. I mean, yeah. I've been doing it since I was a real little kid. And and uh, I sold my first short story when I was in my early 20s, which was a little porno story that I sold to Chic Magazine. <laughs> but um, uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I don't really, I don't know. I mean... Why? You know, let me ask. I, let me I'm ask you. Probably less of a horror writer than anything else, to be honest. I mean, I've done a fair amount of horror, and and like the two really low budget movies that I directed were horror movies, but they're also kind of funny and weird, and so I don't know. I yeah. like to write stuff. Well, I was going to say, and in this day and age, where you see a lot of self published authors on Amazon selling like gangbusters with their dinosaur uh loves a oh woman God, sex yeah. stories that so you sound like the kind of guy you must sit awake on occasion on you know i could write a story about a romance between an x and a y it has you've you've thought of this haven't you oh yeah yeah okay. you know what though it's like i can't it's i ray bradbury said once that uh, you should never write to the market because basically what you're going to do is write a story you don't give a shit about and nobody else gives a shit about because <laughs> you, you basically need to write what you want to write and what makes you happy. And, you know, I, I, I'm not one of those... I mean, I'm a self-published author other than, you know, short stories and, and the Friday the 13th novel. And actually, the experience with the Friday the 13th novel helped lead me to self-publishing because of some interesting stuff with the editor on that book but uh um i can tell you i'm not selling like gangbusters but my sales have been picking up recently which is cool and i can actually see what looks like people reading the first book in this vampire series and then going and immediately reading the second and third which is kind of cool well, that's cool well let's um let's talk about that so you've got a series um the first book of which is called pete drinker of blood what is yeah. it? What is it about? When did you start working on it? Give me let's 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 kind of take a look at this one. Well, that one I actually had the original idea when I was broke and starving and living in a tiny tiny apartment in L.A. in 1999, and I remember like sitting there one night thinking, Jesus, you know, I might as well be a freaking vampire. I just sit here in this little apartment and I have no money to go do anything, 
and I'm a you know starving screenwriter, and the only thing I do is go to these meetings that never seem to go anywhere. And uh, occasionally I get a free meal out of it. But uh, that idea kind of kicked around for a while. And then in, I guess, 2009, I wrote it as a screenplay. And uh, then there's a long story involving a really terrible manager I got involved with. Um, So nothing really happened with that. And then I, I finally decided to write it as a novel in think like 2012 and uh, put the first book out and uh, since then I've written two more the second one is called uh, Pete has risen from the grave and the third one is called taste the blood of Pete (laughs) and they're you know kind of funny Uh, they're about a guy uh, who was bitten by a vampire in 1973 and he kind of stuck that way, so he's still got kind of the 70s sideburns, and he listens to classic rock, and he has like an old, you know, Plymouth Duster that he drives. And, and he works for the Department of Water and Power, works nights in uh, L.A. And uh, it's basically this big kind of overarching storyline, but each book is self-contained at the same time. And, you know, they're kind of, in tone, I would say, they're probably similar to, like, Buffy the Vampire Slayer or Angel, you know? They're kind of funny, but they're also kind of serious in places, and there's a lot of action and stuff. And... Yeah, that sense. I don't know if you've ever seen a show called Todd and the Book of Pure Evil. No. Um, well, if you get a chance, check it out. It's 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 Canadian. Um, you can get it on DVD here in the States. Um, I just interviewed the original creator, but it's a bunch of kids at a school but it's it, the school is Crowley High, and there's a book of pure evil that goes around. It grants you your wish, but then the wish like murders people. So like you know, this guy has a small dick, so he wish, wishes for a bigger dick. Well, he gets a big dick, but it talks, it has teeth, and if people see it, it turns them to stone. So it's it, just imagine. Just a sh- yeah, it's a show. Um, the reason I was thinking of that when you're describing Pete, uh, drinker of blood, is somebody described Todd in the Book of Pure Evil as Buffy the Vampire Slayer with foul mouths and dick jokes. <laughs> I guess there are a few dick jokes in the Pete books, but. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm definitely going to have to check those out. Now, you publish those through Amazon? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. And. Uh, um... Yeah, they're in paperback and they're available for Kindle. And uh, and because it's Kindle exclusive, if you got the Kindle Unlimited thing, you can read them for free, and I still get paid. <laughs> oh, that's pretty handy. Yeah, I like that part. Yeah. So I, this in this day and age, now my wife is actually self-published through Amazon a couple books as well. Um, the downside being you got to get out and do your own publicity. But the upside yeah, being... Yeah, but you know what? That's also the downside of being published by a traditional publisher. Because it, most of them, unless you're James Patterson or you know George R. R. Martin or somebody like that, they don't give a shit about promoting your book. They're going to put your book out, and if it doesn't do well, first time out of the gate, a lot of the times they won't even honor the contract and publish the second book in your trilogy, you know? So, mm-hmm. uh, so it's kind of a small price to pay to have to uh, promote the stuff that... Uh, well, I was going to say, what, what happened to my wife was she got an agent who made her change. And this is an autobiographical story about we lost a child eight years ago. And it's an autobiographical story. The agent wanted her to change the ending of the book. 
And then, and then when three or four editors got to the end and they were depressed by the end because it's a depressing story, she Mm -hmm. goes, well, I'm out of ideas. Where do you want to take it? So that's when she just went to Amazon with it. She's like, ah, screw it. (laughs) I've already put the work in. You know, that's it, man. I mean, to me, it's like the whole point is, you know, and obviously you've got to like have enough self-awareness to know when you've done something that works. And when you've done something that doesn't, if you're going to be self-publishing, and a lot of people don't have that self-awareness. But the argument I always make for self-publishing, because you still, you're not nearly as much, but you still see a lot of people kind of poo-pooing it. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, well, you're not a real writer if you're, if you're self-published. But, you know, that's if you made that same argument directed at other forms of media, then like John Cassavetes wouldn't be a real director because half the time he self-financed his, his movies, you know, right. he mortgage his house and, and self-distribute the things. And, you know, he's a friggin' genius. And, well, uh, and the thing you is, know, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles wouldn't be a real comic book. Right. <laughs> and, and well, in this day and age, it's not like back when offset printing cost $10 billion or, you know, exactly, film. Yeah, yeah. When film costs so much to get produced. I mean, I bought a book about filmmaking in 1994, 1995, and it was all about making a black and white print because film was still so expensive. Well, yeah, just, just yeah. 10 years after that, now we're all digital, you know? Exactly. And, yeah. you know, you can, I'm, well, I've seen whole movies shot with an iPhone now, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah. I watched, uh, what was it? Tangerine? The, uh, I think uh, think that was the name of one of them. Yeah, yeah, I saw it on Netflix, and that was apparently shot with iPhones with some sort of lens packages. And yeah, it's you know it's astonishing, and and it's great. It's like you know it's it gives people more of a chance, but at the same time you got to have that self awareness too. You know. Well, <laughs> so, yeah, and, and look, I um, mean, even even in the days of you know uh, media empires standing there holding the reins of what got out and what didn't. Some shit slipped through the cracks. I mean, there was some garbage stuff released by big money. Oh companies. my god, yeah, I've yeah. read plenty of shitty books put out by traditional publishers that also have typos and stuff in them. Mm-hmm. And I've read plenty of really good self-published books. Yeah, you know. So, it, so it's it's the proof is in the pudding, basically. I think when it when it all boils down to it, it's you can either do it or you can't. And yeah, that's the the thing goes with filmmaking or comic books or. You know, baking bread. So. Yeah. Well, I see. I'm a my my regular day to day life. I'm a plumbing salesman. Yeah, you know, I go out. I oh, meet wow. contractors. I shake hands and I I try to move you know large quantities of toilets, pipe, blah blah blah, whatever. Uh-huh. And it is firmly my view that nothing happens till you get out and sell something. And this this is as a plumbing salesman. This is it. A kid at McDonald's going, you want fries and a shake, right? This is you guys as writers and artists going out, going to conventions, shaking hands with people, writing posts on Facebook, getting on Reddit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, how hard is it? I mean, I know you live in uh, Arizona, if you don't mind me saying. I believe that's okay. Uh, New Mexico, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. I live in a little town called Bernalillo in New Mexico. Okay. So how do you have trouble trying to do the publicity side since you're not really – in a major metropolitan area or in this no, day and age, no, is it still pretty what? easy to do? Because I live in New Mexico, which is where Roger Zelazny was from, George R. R. Martin lives here. In fact, my next-door neighbor was George's personal assistant for a while, and now she's personal assistant to Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, who are the guys who write the Expanse books that the oh, sci-fi wow. is based on. They're from here. Victor Milan, who writes the Dinosaur Lords books, um, is from here, and 
uh, you know, Melinda Snodgrass, who was the story editor on Star Trek The Next Generation for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think there's just tons. Um, Fred Saberhagen, uh, Jack Williamson. So there's a huge community of not just science fiction and fantasy authors, but authors in general here. And there's a convention in Albuquerque called Bubonicon every year that's been going on for like 45 years or something. I think. Oh, wow. Um, and so that's a good way to, to get the word out. And then, again, just like you were saying, posting on Facebook and stuff. And I don't just, you know, post about the books. I, I try to live by the Don Adams rule, which is if you're posting on Facebook, you got to pretend you're on the Carson show. you got to bring material. You know, you gotta got to tell a joke or have a cool photo or, or, or whatever. But um, because nobody wants to hear you talk about your book all the time. And uh, I'll tell you, though, the best thing that has happened to my sales was discovering that I can advertise through Amazon and all I pay is it puts my ads on whatever book title I use as a keyword. So I've had sales from people looking at, you know, uh, interview with the vampire, you know, <laughs> things like that. Um, and it costs the, the price of a click. If somebody clicks on your ad, it charges you four or five cents. Oh, wow. And and I started doing this these ads in at the very beginning of March and my sales jumped up like crazy. And I mean I'm not, you know, I'm not anywhere near making a living from, from selling those books, but uh uh it's it's really it's really boosted the visibility and, and that's the hardest part with any of this stuff and it doesn't just apply to self-publishing but it's discoverability is the hardest part and you know if your book is sitting on a shelf in a bookstore if you can find a fucking bookstore <laughs> now right um you know it, it, it can you can be published by by tour and your book can be sitting on the shelf but is it is it cover out is it spine out is anybody paying attention to it you know and it's just as hard to get found that way. And I kind of see these ads that I've been running as being sort of like your book sitting on the shelf. I mean, basically, if you're just putting a book up on Amazon, that's kind of like it's sitting in a box on the floor. Yep. <laughs> because you just have to hope somebody stumbles across it. But if, if you're running these ads and, you know, you, you're, it's all experimental, you know, getting the right keywords and everything else, but... Basically, somebody seeing that ad is like somebody walking past your book on the shelf and going, oh, look. And if somebody clicks on it, it's somebody picking it up and reading the back cover, maybe, you know. And if you're lucky, you'll get that sale. And I think your chances are about as good as if it's sitting on a shelf in the bookstore. Maybe better because, you know, the Kindle edition of Pete is two ninety nine, the paperback edition is nine ninety nine, And if you get the Kindle Unlimited, you can read it for free, so... It's, well, it's a little know, easier me, to stomach. Take let, me, let me stop you right there. And How did you discover the advertising? Did somebody tell you about it? Or did you just stumble no, on it? No, you know what's funny? I, I go and I look at my sales reports on the, the Kindle publishing page, and there's this link on there that says ad campaigns. And I never clicked on it for months because I thought, well, you know, that's hundreds of dollars probably to advertise on Amazon. And then one day I was sitting there being depressed about not selling more books. I was, you know, if I had anything to click on it. And 
that's when I, I realized it's you, you pay only if somebody clicks on your ad. And even then, you basically set a daily uh, budget of what you're willing to spend. And I haven't gotten anywhere near hitting my daily budget yet. Uh, and I set a $2 daily budget on okay. the ads. And, uh, and you set like a, a, a bid per click. And I usually set like eight or nine cents as the bid. And it's all kind of based on what other people bid. So it's going to vary on different books, like what your ad placement is going to be. But, you know, basically there'll be like a little strip. There's like customers also bought. And then under that, there's uh, something like sponsored products related to this item or something like that. And there'll be pages of them you can click through. And depending on what the various bids are uh, is what your, your placement is. So you can be right there under their nose on the first page or, you know, you can be one over or four over or whatever. But it really is an amazing tool for guys like me because I don't have any goddamn money to spend on advertising. Right. But I can afford three or four cents for a click. And since you can set a, a daily limit, if it, people go crazy and click on your ads like maniacs, well, you're only going to hit that limit. And then, you know, you're not spending more money than you can afford to spend. So you're not so, going to log in and find out you owe them 1800 bucks. It's going to be like, I exactly. said this much. Yeah. 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 So I think so far in, so I've had them running March, April and, and, you know, May so far. And I think my total spend on the clicks is a little less than 20 bucks. And I've made significantly more than that on sales. So, and, and, you know, and the reads too, cause you get paid for those and that's all based on, on, you know, whatever the, the Kindle unlimited fund is for that month or whatever, but you know, it pays pretty well. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, maybe, maybe tell your wife. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's something we definitely have to look at. Um, how long are your Pete drinker of blood books? Um, they're not like super long. I don't like to write like really long books because I would rather just be pretty straightforward and just sort of tell an entertaining story or what mm -hmm. I hope is an entertaining story. Um, I think the first one is about 65,000 words and the second and third are somewhere around like 90, 95,000. Okay. Um, and that's mostly because there's just more stuff happening as they go along. And, you know, the first one was based on the screenplay and I was kind of establishing all the different characters because there's a group of uh, of vampires that he, he hangs out with uh, who are kind of the cool kid vampires, and he's kind of the, the goofball, you know? Gotcha. And they all hang out at this place, which Don Adams came up with the name for. It's a nightclub called Club Emoglobin, <laughs> and uh, it's on the Sunset Strip. And, so, but, um, but, yeah. Well, no, the, the reason the reason I'm asking is maybe we should try to do, I'll, I'll read them and we'll do an audio book. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, um, no, that's really cool. And I'm always curious when people who have been self publishing and you find these little tricks like your advertising, things yeah. like that, and pricing because pricing is like a real tricky thing for people too. Because you know my advice yeah. to anybody is always well charge what it's worth and make sure you make the same amount between a print book and a, a digital book. You know that's kind of mm -hmm. my yeah that's my look at it. It's like if you make seventy five cents on a print book, then make sure you make seventy five cents on a digital. 
Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, and that's something I, I, I used to worry that, I mean, the, the first piece book right now is two ninety nine, and people tell me that's too cheap, but I feel like it's kind of fair and it maybe gives people a, makes them feel a little more confident about taking a shot on somebody maybe they don't know as a writer and on an unknown quantity. And then the second book and the third book are three ninety nine each uh, for the Kindle versions. And, you know, the paperbacks are obviously more expensive than that. But uh, right. um, I, uh, I've got a friend named Andy Kuhn who's a comic book artist who has drawn like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Doctor Who and all kinds of stuff. Oh, and cool. uh, he... Uh, I did this little uh, kind of comics zine thing to have at a convention that I was setting up at once, and and I was asking him what I should price it at, and I was like, should I price it at like fifty cents or something? He's like, don't don't be a nut. Price it at like five dollars. And I was like, what do you got of your mind? And he said, look, if if people look at it and it's fifty cents, they're going to think it's worth fifty cents, and they're not going to buy it. And you know, you can't go crazy, but. I see. I see a lot of people like giving shit away for free on Kindle and stuff, and I don't. I've I've tried like the free giveaways, but my experience with that sort of thing is there are a lot of people who grab up anything that's free, right? And they don't give a damn what it is, and they never get around to reading it. They don't. They just want something for free. I had this experience when I was running my video store because at that time Jason Goes to Hell was coming out, and there was going to be a preview screening of it in Albuquerque. And this radio station called me up and asked me if I wanted to, uh, you know, be involved with it and hand out the passes for it. And the guy gave me this, you know, big, I can't remember how much it cost me to do this. Oh, and, shit. You know, it got my name on the internet. But, um, you know, he's telling me all, all these people will come in and they're going to be into this. And they're going to look around your store. And they're going to go crazy. And what it was was a bunch of like housewives and shit who just wanted to see a movie for free. They didn't care that it was you know, Friday the 13th, they didn't care what it was. It was a free movie. And so all these people come in and get, just walk up to the counter, get their free pass, walk out. You know, I think one person actually wound up being a customer at the store from it. So I guess maybe that's a pretty good average. Yeah. It's kind of like, kind of like what I read before I started doing these Kindle ads is, um, it shows your statistics of impressions, which is how many times your ad has been seen on a page. And then clicks, you know, which is how many times people click on it and go over and look at the actual book. And uh, apparently getting one click for every thousand impressions on average is really good. So, yeah. you know, maybe getting that one guy who came back and rented a couple movies after getting his free pass for Jason Goes to Hell was good. But Well, when I used to <clears throat> when I used to deal with customers who were in HVAC and plumbing, they would do direct mail pieces, like, to a neighborhood. We considered one to two percent conversion outstanding. You know that was yeah, that's that's yeah. what you should be shooting for. So yeah, yeah I, mean, I can I can believe that. Yeah, so I can see that. Um, but I, yeah, I do think though, in the case of like the books, giving the books away makes people think they're not worth reading. You know, um, and it doesn't hurt. I've done like little giveaways on like, Goodreads and stuff, where I've given you know a few copies of the paperback away and stuff, and and people seem to get excited about it, but. Uh, but like I did a free like two or three day thing with the first Pete book I needed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of downloads of it and then nobody ever went back and looked at the other books so it was uh, I just think there's a lot of people who just 
you know, that's free, I'll take it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> the, the free collectors. They just, oh, zero dollars, yeah. I will take one of those, and I will never read exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so we are starting to run down on time and Scott, I thank you for taking the time to do this. I do want to ask you about one thing real briefly, uh, before we got into this, you said you want to save it or maybe we should save it for the show. Um, I recently bought a book called, uh, Slash of the Titans, which is the story of 17 different versions of Freddy versus Jason that, that, well, 16 that didn't get made and one that did, but you got to pitch, or you ended up pitching a Freddy versus Jason. I I forced a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I was in 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 1999. I was making the rounds in Hollywood off of a, a, a romantic comedy script I had written called Kitty Sitter, and uh, I would I literally had meetings at every friggin' production company, every studio in town, off of that script. And of course, it was always like. This is the funniest script I've ever read. But the guy who owns the company doesn't like cats, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of stuff. But um, I was pitching at New Line. Not, uh, I had a meeting at New Line off of that script. And the person that I was meeting with, I said, you guys are, you guys are doing Freddy vs. Jason, right? And they said, yeah, yeah, why, well, you got an idea for that? And I said, hell yeah, I do. Freddy vs. Jason. <laughs> Wait, I'm saying it wrong. Okay. Penn and Teller meet Freddy versus and then Jason. And I said, here's the deal. Penn and Teller are counselors at a summer camp for kids with sleep disorders. <laughs> I said, you go to the Abbott and Costello route, <laughs> but you make it scary. And this woman just like looked at me like I was out of my goddamn mind. And I think she was like reaching for the security button. But, uh, but, uh, like I said, I used to kind of get that a lot. I would, I would, uh, I, I, I had a pitch meeting at Universal, at a production company at Universal once, and they said, what would be your dream project here at Universal? And I said, I want to do a sequel to The Ghost of Mr. Chicken with Steve Buscemi playing Don Knotts' son. <laughs> 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 they were like, what are you talking about? Oh, shit. So, yeah, that's why my, my uh, screenwriting career is pretty much over. <laughs> that is that is hilarious. Um you know, let me let me ask you this, and I'm definitely going to go back and link to link to all your books and stuff on Amazon. Uh, and it looks to me like uh, Drive is available as a rental on a uh, digital rental on Amazon. So I'll make sure when we put this out, we have is links it? to everything. <laughs> it looks like it for four ninety nine. You can rent it on Amazon. So uh, holy look, crap, that means that, that means I'm getting ripped off again. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, Hollywood has yet to not find a way to fuck somebody out of money somewhere. You know, they're they're Man, kind no of the kidding. yeah. Actually, on Drive, I, I, uh, I maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but I uh, hooked up with a, an entertainment lawyer, guy who just fresh out of, you know, getting his his uh, or passing the bar, wanted to be an entertainment lawyer, and he asked to represent me, and he said first thing I'm going to do is try and get the royalties that they owe you on Drive, and he did some calculations, you know, something like seventeen thousand dollars that they apparently owed me. And they basically told him, we'll give you $5,000 or you can sue us. <laughs> and he said, you know what? Let's just take the $5,000. So I, uh, got a little stiffed on that, but I don't even, that's another one. I have no idea who owns the rights to that movie anymore. I think, yeah. you know, the director's cut, it might actually be on YouTube. You can watch it for free and it's like 15 minutes longer and it's a completely different score. Oh, wow. I think well, if you do a search for like Drive Dacascos Director's Cut, you can find it. 
Well, that's okay. Cool. I mean, I'd rather see somebody get paid, but if you're not getting anything, fuck those guys. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm not getting jack shit. <laughs> yeah. no. Have at it. Yeah. Well, fuck them. <laughs> we didn't like them anyways. <laughs> Um, so do you have do you have a place where people can find your work or links to your work? I mean, is there a place where people can find you, know, you on I the got a, I got a shitty website that hasn't. I can't even. I, I'm a moron when it comes to this stuff, so I can't figure out how to update it. But it's easiest if you look for me on Facebook. Um, and there's a shit ton of Scott Phillipses, including one who uh, I've got his credits on my IMDb page for a movie called Crowbar or something. But that ain't me. Um, I, uh, yeah, there it is on your on your like IMDb. It. There it is. Yeah, yeah, and then there's some French TV series or something too. Apparently, yeah. I don't I don't know from that. Um, because I think my last screenwriting credit was Common Rider Dragon Knight, if I remember right. Yeah, well, that's kind um, of weird. Well, maybe you'll yeah, get they, maybe you'll get some of his checks too. They, yeah, well, you know what? I actually got. I used to get from the WGA royalty checks for the the Scott Phillips who wrote The Ice Harvest um, <laughs> for a movie that he he did called uh, like Crosscut or something and uh, it took us forever to get that straightened out but yeah um, I'm surprised it's not like actors yeah, I'm surprised think, they don't make you guys like change your names yeah yeah it's, it's crazy how many of us there are but yeah. if you if you if you look for you know Scott Phillips on Facebook the little like about thing online says, you know, writer of Drive and the Pete Drinker of Blood Books. So that's how you can find me. Oh, there we go. Cool. Well, we'll I definitely. Think, you know, I think it shows that I'm from Albuquerque, but you know, I actually live in Bernalillo. So, but that's the best place to find me, and that's where I'm most active. And, and right I post, on. You know, goofy pictures of my dog rolling in the dirt and stuff. So it's, oh. it's an exciting adventure. Well, there you go. Cool. Well, Scott, thank you for coming on. I do appreciate it. And we will try to help people find your uh, Facebook page at the very least. Uh, if anybody, <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. If anybody out there does, uh, you know, websites for free, uh, maybe get a hold of Scott and help him get his website up to date. <laughs> that, that might be a nice thing to do. Um, in, yeah. 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 I don't know what I'm doing. Well, you know, we all but, have that uh, problem. <laughs> that's my website um, I, I'm only getting anywhere because I finally got around to hiring an article writer and go oh yeah so it's not just me linking back to my podcast constantly right yeah <laughs> yeah I think I've got the link to my website in the books but uh, but yeah like I said I think the, the last update was when the second Pete book came out and I tried to update it again recently and it just went into the ether somewhere and I don't know what I'm doing oh there you go <laughs> cool <laughs> Well, Scott, thank you very much. I appreciate you coming on. You bet. Thank you. Yeah. I, I appreciate being here. And let me, anytime you got something coming up that you want to get the word out about, feel free to hit me up, and we'll have you back on to talk about it, because it's been a lot of fun, and we didn't even get into Star Wars or Star Trek or any other than nerdy know, shit man, that we're we into. Come back. Yeah. So we'll definitely we'll keep you on the Rolodex. Everybody else, you can catch us at geekishcast.com. I'm on Facebook at facebook.com slash geekishcast, and I tweet from at the geekishcast. Take care, everybody. Geekishcast is a Vias and Victor production and is part of the Astro Panda Productions Network. You can find us now on SoundCloud and on Blog Talk Radio. Our theme music is taken from the song Out to Get Mine by Reign of Zaius. Check them out at reignofzaius.net.